0: I had the misfortune of attending uh, Vanderbilt University for my Masters of Divinity work, and uh, I will tell you that the only thing worse than being a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School was being a fan of Vanderbilt sports. Uh, During my time there, we suffered many disappointing losses. Our uh, basketball team blew a fourth-quarter lead to a number two ranked Kentucky team featuring John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins, if you're familiar with that uh, 2007 uh, or 2010 uh, Kentucky team. But of all the letdowns, I will say that none was more disheartening than our football teams uh, loss to the University of Georgia in my first year there. At halftime, we were up on the number six ranked Bulldogs, 17-7, to 7, Bulldog team that was led by future number one draft pick, Matthew Stafford. And I remember heading into the fourth quarter, turning to my, my, my buddy Ben and remarking, hopefully, that we may just pull this off. And one of our other friends, who's two years older than us in the program, he overheard me and he interjected, just wait, you guys are new to Vandy Sports. I said, I've seen this script before. I know how this story ends. 20 to 17, Georgia, that's how it ended, on a last-minute field goal after we fumbled the ball away with two minutes on the clock. When it comes to Vanderbilt athletics, and I know many of you Mizzou fans feel me on this too, seems like it's always the same old story, right? New season, same story, same disappointments. Well, we are in the dead middle of the book of Genesis this morning, chapters 25 and 26, So if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and begin turning there, I encourage you to do so. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those as well, at the info bar. It's our gift to you. The story is going to transition this morning from tracing the life of the OG patriarch Abraham to the life of his son, Isaac. Lest we think that the theme of the story is about to change, these two chapters are going to emphasize for us the truth of that ecclesiastical proverb that there truly is nothing new under the sun new patriarch same old story specifically the recurring motif that we've observed through the first half of genesis was that god blesses us we screw up but then god remains faithful and he redeems our sin we saw that with adam and eve God blessed them in the Garden of Eden. They broke his one rule, and they ate of the fruit. And yet, God offered for them in their place the first sacrifice in history to cover their sin. We saw it with Noah. God delivered his family from the flood. What does Noah do? He gets drunk, and he curses his own son, Ham. But God blesses and flourishes his lineage nonetheless. We saw it with Abraham. Isaac's father, Abraham, was, was promised by God a land, a people as numerous as the stars, and to make him a blessing to all nations. But what does Abraham do? He doubts God, so he runs from the land. He, leaves, he pursues offspring illegitimately through Sarah's servant, Hagar, instead. And he deceitfully lies to the nations, nearly resulting in their destruction. And yet, once again, God works in spite of Abraham to redeem his bad choices and even use them to further prosper Abraham. And this morning, we're going to see that theme continue in the life of his son, Isaac. But I'm going to challenge you as we work our way through this morning, chapters 25 and 26 here, not to be content with mere Bible study. Okay, we want to look for opportunities for Bible application as well. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So I I question you, I, I challenge you to question, in what ways have you seen this same cycle? God blesses me, I mess up, and yet God remains faithful and forgives me, even redeems my sin. In what ways have you seen that at work in your own life over the years? In what areas might you currently be guilty of continually falling into the same old sinful patterns and pitfalls. Maybe that's some of you this morning, it's always the same old story. I, I keep making the same old mistakes. And you need to be both convicted this morning of your need for repentance, of turning from that sin, but also you need to be comforted by God's promise of redemption in spite of you. Your sin doesn't have a final word in your life if you're a follower of God. That is the good news of Isaac's story. That is the good news of the entire biblical story, overarching story, 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. That's the good news. Is it the good news in your life this morning? That's the question. I pray it is, I pray it is. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you now once again to ask you to quiet our hearts, quiet our spirits, to block out any distractions that might be going on, whether we brought them into this place God, I know that our we gather this morning with all sorts of things going on in our minds and our hearts. And yet, Father, the one thing that we all have in common is that we need to hear from you this morning. We need to hear from your word. We need to hear good news. I know that the one thing we all have in common is that we get beat up and chewed up and spit out sometimes by the world Monday through Saturday and we come on Sundays to be encouraged, to be uplifted, to be reminded of the hope, the good news that we have in you because of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray right now, would you do that again? Would you, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, touch our hearts, especially the hearts of those here who might not yet know you god if there's anyone here who has not tasted and seen the goodness of god who has not personally experienced your faithfulness in spite of their faithlessness and turn from their sin to trust in you jesus i pray for that person this morning would you reveal yourself to them through your word for our good and for your glory we pray now father in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, usually I make you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, but since we are going to cover two entire chapters here, 69 verses, we are just going to read it as we work our way through in the outline in your bulletins. We are going to be actually jumping back and forth. We'll be uh, reading reading straight through, but then uh, ping-ponging back and forth in your, uh, in your bulletins because that's what the story does here. It swings back and forth three times, three kind of movements here between our sin and God's solution for his response to our sin, his salvation offered in spite of our sin. God just keeps offering us even more grace, grace on top of grace. That's, that's what we see here, so let's start chapter 25 verses 1 through 6, we see that Abraham falls prey here first of all to the same old sin of infidelity that's, that's his sin I think here the opening of chapter 25 infidelity, Abraham took another wife, we hear whose name was Keturah she bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Midan and Midian and Ishbak Shua, Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan the sons of Dadon were Asherim Letashim and Le- Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Efer, Hanok, Abida, Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had, though, to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now you might ask, is that really infidelity? didn't Sarah die back in chapter 23? Isn't Abraham permitted to remarry here? And I will admit that I, I don't have an airtight argument here for Abraham's adultery, but I will point out two bits of evidence for you. First, notice that Keturah is referred to in verse 6 as a concubine. First Chronicles one thirty-two confirms that. This leads many biblical, biblical scholars to speculate that Abraham had already taken her as a concubine while Sarah was still Living and then when Sarah died, Keturah just got upgraded to the status of wife. Secondly, notice the text, and by the way, it was plural there, if you notice, concubines. Abraham's got multiple, he he already sent Hagar away, but he's got multiple concubines in fidelity. Secondly, notice the text specifies that Abraham sent her family away, verse 6, while he was still living. Now why did he do that? You've got a 175-year-old man, presumably struggling to, to feed himself, clothe himself, bathe himself. Why get rid of your family, your support system? He's already exiled Hagar and Ishmael back in chapter 21. Makes me think that there must have been bad blood again. Maybe Keturah's kids weren't content just getting some parting gifts in Abraham's will. They wanted an equal cut of the inheritance. Maybe that's what's going on. But Isaac... God has already told Abraham, Isaac is the child of promise. And so the question bears asking, why did Abraham remarry at all? Keturah seems to have just muddied the waters all over again. Should her children even exist? I mean, that's a question that's worth us asking. We know that in the case of Ishmael, he shouldn't. There is a very real sense in which Ishmael should have never been born because this whole affair between Abraham and Hagar should have never happened. And yet we're going to see in verses 12 through 18, God blesses Ishmael nevertheless. That is the kind of redemption that our God offers us. We, we, we as believers, we can be brutally honest about our sin and its consequences because we know that nothing, not even our worst sin, can thwart God's sovereign good purposes for our life. Amen. He has a plan, and even when we think that maybe we are at risk of having totally derailed it, you can take heart this morning. You don't have that kind of power. One day, as a practical example, similar What's going on here? One day I'll have to explain to my son, in not so many words, that his mom's one-night stand, her fling with his father, who we don't even know, should have never happened. It was sinful, abhorrent to God. And yet, we look at what beauty God brings from it. That is the kind of God that we worship, friends. He can take even our worst decisions and bring out of them unimaginable good for his glory now I tacked on the ending of today's passage here as well chapter 26 verses 34 and 35 we hear when Esau was 40 years old he took Judith the daughter of Bere the Hittite to be his wife and Basemath the daughter of Elon the Hittite and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah now there is no debate this time Esau should not have married Judith or Basemath I don't care how awesome their names were They are Hittites Intermarrying was forbidden This is absolute infidelity Disobedience to God Esau proves Once again here Same old story Same old story, same sin Like father, like son, right? That's what they say The apple doesn't fall far from the tree Maybe that's you this morning Maybe you feel caught up in this cycle of generational sin. Maybe you've had an issue with pornography ever since you discovered your father's playboys under the mattress when you were seven years old. Maybe you are meddling and overbearing in your children's lives because that's the way that your mother parented you. Maybe you're a workaholic because your father implicitly taught you that a person's worth is dictated by his salary. From what I can tell, we typically fall into one of two traps here. We either unconsciously repeat our parents' mistakes without even thinking about it, or we react against them and their examples so strongly that we swing the pendulum too far in the other direction. If your mom was a helicopter parent, you become disengaged and distant. If your father was absent, you become clingy. But how does God respond? to our infidelity, to our failures, our shortcomings. Is Abraham forever defined by, remembered by, just the sum of his worst mistakes, of Hagar, of Keturah? No. Number two, despite his faithlessness, Abraham received the same future that God had already covenanted to him in verses 7 through 11. Sometimes we say it's not how you start, it's how you finish. In the Christian life, it's not even how you you finish. Abraham, I think, kind of went limping through the finish line. Not sure this was his most faithful moment. But praise God, he's not judged by his. Dying years fling with Keturah, verses 7 through 11. We hear these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, the field of Ephron, the son of Zahorah the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Baer Lahai Roy. God gave Abraham a future in the life to come. He was gathered together to his people, we hear. In other words, Abraham went down to Sheol, just like everyone else in Old Testament times, but the Bible makes it clear elsewhere that there were different places in Sheol, for the righteous and the unrighteous, Abraham was gathered to his people, the God-fearers, the God-followers. He is not judged by his worst mistakes. Rather, Abraham is remembered in the New Testament, Romans 4, James 2, Galatians 3, Hebrews 11, as a pillar and an example par excellence of faith. Abraham is like the goat in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Moreover, verse 11, Genesis 25, back in the Old Testament, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. God's promise of a future legacy of faith for Abraham through Isaac is only just beginning, even as Abraham is being laid to rest. It's only just beginning. The story has just begun. Friends, do you know that you are today can still be included in Abraham's legacy of faith in God's promise of a future for you personally because of his son Jesus' death and resurrection for you? Do you know that? Galatians 3.29, that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are, are Abraham's descendant. Or at least you can be. If you are Christ, you too will one day be gathered to your people, either the righteous or the unrighteous, the saved or the damned. And it is only by faith in Jesus that you and I can inherit eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Have you received God's promise of a future for your life personally by faith this morning? Trust in Jesus today, and you will be saved. That's the good news. But number three, even though God has promised you a future, even if you are saved, that does not undo your past. The consequences of of your sinful past may still follow you throughout your earthly life. You notice we're jumping back and forth now. So now we're back in the top column again. We, we we're back above the line of sin, and you've got to jump back below for God's response and salvation. Okay, so we're above the line. The consequences of your sinful past may still follow you throughout your earthly life. If you're like Abraham, perhaps all the way to your death. The first thing we hear after Abraham dies is that God's blessing is now passing to his son Isaac. That's amazing. But the very next thing we hear, verses 12 through 18, these are the generations of Ishmael. A reminder, Abraham's other son, his bastard son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And I won't read all Ishmael's descendants, but we hear in verse 18 that he settled over against all his kinsmen in opposition to his kinsmen. Ishmael's warring Conflictual nature has been foretold even before his birth. You remember back to chapter 16 we studied there. You shall call his name Ishmael. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And I told you back when we studied chapter 16 that the religion of Islam traces its roots, its origins back to Abraham through Ishmael, the other son. In fact, Muslims reinterpret the story of Genesis 22 such that Ishmael is God's chosen son who is nearly sacrificed on the mountain. But you can judge for yourself whether Islam is a religion of peace or a religion of the sword. Judge from history, judge from the Quran. The Quran commands Muslims to make war on the infidels who dwell around you. That's Surah 9 121. The Quran contains over 40 references to war, none to peace. No people have been more targeted by Ishmael's descendants throughout history than Isaac's descendants, the Jews. In a real sense, you could say that Abraham's past, his infidelity with Hagar, is still haunting his future today. How about you? Let's make it personal. You? What demons from your past can you just not seem to shake? Maybe you're still reaping the consequences of bad decisions from 10, 20, 50 years ago. Seems like a lifetime ago. You're still reaping the consequences. Hold that thought. God has a solution. First, we'll stay above the line, our sin. We hear in verses 19 through 21, we see Isaac dealing with the same concerns that Abraham had, the same struggles. Verses 19 through 21, we hear Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now, Isaac and Rebekah are struggling with struggling with infertility. It's the same struggle Abraham and Sarah had faced. We know that all the brokenness in our world is ultimately the result of some sin, but this is important. Every trial that you go through in life is not the consequence of your own sin, God's judgment for something you've did. We don't Christians don't subscribe to that sort of karmic universe where I do something bad and now God's going to do something bad to me. It's not how it works. Think of John chapter 9 when Jesus' disciples asked him, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And Jesus replied, neither. It's not how it works. I mean, both of them have sinned. That's not the reason the man was born blind. He was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him, Jesus says. Similarly, Rebecca's barrenness here in chapter 25 of Genesis may not be the result of her sin or of Isaac's sin. In fact, in contrast to Abraham this time, Isaac does not take matters into his own hands. He does not push the easy button and hook up with Rebecca's servant instead. No, verse 21, he prays. He prays, and just like the blind man in John chapter 9, we discover that Rebecca's infertility was God-ordained so that the works of God might be displayed when God miraculously opens her womb after 20 years of failing to be able to get pregnant. Make it personal again. What's the biggest struggle you face today? Maybe it's not your own sin. Maybe it's just the result of living in a broken, fallen world. Infertility, debt, unemployment, family strife, marital strife, wayward children, addiction, loneliness, depression, mental illness, a physical ailment. What's the biggest concern, struggle you face today? It can be really difficult to see How the works of God are displayed through these kinds of circumstances, can't it? Especially when they feel like the same old struggles, when you feel like you never see any progress, you never get any relief. Same old concern, week after week, day after day. Is it possible, though, friend? Is it possible? that the works of God are evident in your life, in your faithful perseverance, despite that struggle's persistence in your life. Maybe the even greater testimony to the power of God in your life than your miraculous healing from that disease or your miraculous deliverance from that addiction is your unwavering trust in the goodness of God and the promises of God despite continuing to battle that cancer, continuing to battle that alcoholism. Keep trusting God. And take heart that even when your faith fails and you're faithless, He remains faithful. Thirdly here, verses 22 through 34 to round out chapter 25 here, we witness the same old conflict. Got the same old consequences for sin, the same old concerns, and now the same old conflict. This is the same old sibling rivalry. First it was Cain and Abel. God favored the younger Abel. Then it was Isaac and Ishmael. God chose the younger Isaac as Abraham's promised offspring, and now it's the rivalry between the elder Esau and his younger twin, Jacob, who once again, God will favor the younger. We pick back up in verse 21 with Isaac's prayer, and we hear the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? This was such a tumultuous pregnancy that Rebekah asked, why did I even want to get pregnant in the first place? That was after 20 years of trying. And so Rebecca went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. In keeping with the biblical pattern now, but it In contrast to ancient custom, God is emphasizing here that favor in his kingdom is not a result of being older or stronger or handsomer or wealthier or more powerful. Actually, it has nothing to do with your merit at all. It has everything to do with my sovereign will, God says. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Abel and not Cain. Why did God choose to save you and not your non-Christian sibling? Your unbelieving spouse? Is it because you're a better person? If you believe that, then I take it back. You're not saved at all. No. has nothing to do with your merit. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul explains it in the New Testament. Romans 9. Using this very same example of Jacob and Esau, he says, when Rebekah had conceived children, though they were not yet born, they had done neither bad nor good in order that God's purpose of election. Beware, Arminians, we're going there. God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, exertion, but on God who has mercy on whoever he will and who hardens whoever he wills. Unconditional election, irresistible grace, predestination, all five points of Calvinism. We don't have time to take any of them up here, but they're all touched on tangentially. Genesis 25. So we read on. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau, aka Harry. It's a terrible name. I can say that. We don't have any Harrys here at West Hills. It's a terrible name. I don't have to worry about ever getting nicknamed that obviously that's nice afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel and so his name was called Jacob aka heel grabber literally another weird name idiomatically it means like overreacher he's he's trying to overreach and, and, and take something from someone else Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau is a man's man. Jacob is more of the sensitive type. Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob. This is actually worse than the Ishmael and Isaac conflict because this doesn't just threaten to divide two different families, Hagar's from Sarah's, this conflict threatens to split the entire family of faith itself to drive a wedge between Isaac and his bride, Rebekah, and we're going to see next week in chapter 27 that divide grow nearly to its breaking point when Jacob tricks and deceives his father Isaac to get not just Esau's birthright, but his blessing as well. But here in chapter 25, we do get at least one quick but significant story to contextualize this conflict. Verses 29 through 34, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, aka red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What do we learn here? We learn that Esau is impulsive, that Jacob is conniving, and that both are sinful. Neither one is God's promised sinless Savior, Messiah, for Israel. And yet, God proves true that the older shall serve the younger indeed, because now Jacob is legally entitled to a double portion of Isaac's inheritance. That is Deuteronomy 21:17, the law of primogeniture. Um, ancient custom, the eldest son inherited the lion's share, a double portion of the family estate. But not Esau, not anymore, because he just traded his birthright for wait for it, a bowl of lentil stew. Now, you laugh. Not, not filet mignon, right? Not even soup and salad, not a you-pick too. If this was, if we were at Panera and looking at the soup menu, lentil stew would literally be your last choice, wouldn't it? But I think that's the point. I think that's exactly the point, to emphasize how ludicrous... This trade is, who gives up their birthright for a bowl of lentil stew? Who gives up paradise for a bite of an apple? Well, friends, you and I do. Every single time we sin, we essentially say to God, God, I choose this fleeting, impulsive indulgence of the flesh over intimacy with you. Esau is a picture of us in our sin, so don't laugh at him. So what is God to do with all of these skeletons in our closets from our past, with all of our concerns, all of our conflict, most of all our conflict with him, our sinful rebellion against him? What is God going to do? God could have said, that's it. I've, I've given you all three generations to figure this out now, but Abraham was a sinner, Isaac is about to prove himself a sinner momentarily in chapter 26. And even before that, we get the story acronistically uh, out out of sync of his sons Esau and Jacob proving to be flawed. But what does God do? He doesn't give up on them. Because God is faithful to his promises despite our repeated mistakes from our past, our sustained struggles, our continued conflicts. God offers us the same promises that never fail. That's number four. Same promises and his promises never fail. Chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. pause there for a minute now Abraham has sinned uh, Isaac has sinned Isaac was supposed to stay in the land of Canaan and trust God to provide for him but at the first sign of trouble verse one famine what does he do he naturally does the same thing his father had done under the threat of famine back in chapter 12 Isaac flees But before, again, before we point a finger at Isaac, we need to check those those three or four fingers pointing back at ourselves. How often are we guilty of forgetting God, of kicking God out of the proverbial driver's seat of our lives at the first sight of trouble? Now, where is Isaac heading here? Verse 2, we hear the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt but dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Isaac is on his way to Egypt. Why? Well, Because the Nile River allowed the Egyptians to continue farming and watering their livestock even during droughts. It enabled them essentially to not have to trust God. They could trust in the Nile River instead. So in Deuteronomy 11, God warned his people. He said, the land that you're entering to take possession of, Canaan, it's not like the land of Egypt from which you've come or you sowed your seed and irrigated it. But it is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water only by the rain from heaven, a land that your God cares for. God purposely plants his people in the middle of a desert so that they will have to rely on him for provision for rain. Again, I hope you're seeing all the analogies. What is the desert in your life right now? Where does God have you right now that's uncomfortable? Are you running to Egypt? Are you relying on him? Rain from heaven, his provision, trusting him. Verse three God tells him, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you. This is the first time God promises to be with someone in the Bible, by the way. He says, I will bless you for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God renews the covenant promises that he made to Abraham here with Isaac. Land, family, and blessing, a people, uh, a place, and a promise God appears to Isaac a second time in verses 23 through 25, this time in Beersheba, and once again he promises to bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. This is your God, Christian. This is your God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is for you, not against you, He blesses you despite your sin, your struggles, your strife. Even when you are faithless, your God remains faithful. Praise the Lord this morning for his mercy and his undeserved grace. And yet, we're not done. Two more. Verse uh, number five, go back above the line again. Our sin, we see Isaac falling prey to the same old fears as his father Abraham chapter 26 verses 6 through 11 now so Isaac settled in Gerar and when the men of the place asked him about his wife he said she is my sister for he feared to say my wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance but when there had been a long time uh, when he had been there a long time Abimelech King of the Philistines looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing, i.e. flirting with Rebekah, his wife. And so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech says, what is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, slept with her, and you would have brought guilt upon us all. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Does this story sound familiar? If you've been at West Hills for two months now, it should. If you didn't know any better, you would think this... Oh, I, I, I lied. We did this back in the spring. We took a break, that's right. If you've been at West Hills for eight months, it should sound familiar. If you've read the book of Genesis, it should sound familiar. If you didn't know any better, you would think that this must have been a copying error... By the ancient biblical scribes, because this section is almost identical, word for word, verbatim, to the account of Abraham fearfully deceiving Abimelech, same name, might have been a title, kind of like Pharaoh, king of Gerar back in chapter 20 of Genesis. Like Abraham, Isaac not only fails to trust in God's promise of provision, reign in Canaan, and flees to Gerar instead, but now he fails to trust in God's protection, as well, and he lies to save his own skin, just like his father. The only hope that we can take from this is that Abraham repeated the same mistake twice. You remember Abraham fled to Egypt once, and he fled to Gerar another time. He lied in Egypt to Pharaoh. He lied in Gerar to Abimelech. So at least Isaac only screws up once. I guess that's progress. I guess Abraham did something right as a parent, I sometimes joke that it's our role as parents to leave our kids a little less screwed up than we are. Abraham has succeeded, I suppose, in that. And yet, something is still badly wrong when a believer has to be reprimanded by a pagan, isn't it? Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Dude, that is messed up. Even a pagan Philistine like Abimelech knows it. How about you today? make it personal, any fears causing you to fail to trust God in a way that potentially undermines your witness to the watching non-Christian world. You know, I really thought and I prayed that COVID might spark a revival in our country the likes of which we have not ever seen as believers, as unbelievers, witnessed the the unthwarted otherworldly hope that those of us in Christ have and they turned from their fear to faith in Jesus. But I have to say, over a year later, I'm afraid to admit, I'm not sure that the church's response to COVID has been really any different than the world's in any marked way. Many Christians are proving that they have far more faith in a vaccine than they do in the Lord. Please don't mishear me this morning. I am not saying that Christians shouldn't take the vaccine. I'm double vaccinated. I praise God for modern medicine. But I'm just saying, my ultimate hope is not in a vaccine, friends. It's in the God of the universe. It's in, it's, it's seated, my hope is seated in heaven, heavenly places with Jesus. To me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I know where I'm headed. I'm good either way. That's where my hope lies. Is that where your hope lies? 5b. Isaac doesn't just suffer from the same fears as Abraham. He endures the same feuds as well. The Same feuds. Verses 15 through 22. we We're Almost done here. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. I'm going to skip some of this. Basically, Isaac redigs wells, God prospers them, but then the Philistines get jealous and they fill them back in and argue over them and they steal them from Isaac. And Isaac is a pushover, he's passive, and so he just rolls over and he keeps digging more wells and God keeps blessing him. This is once again reminiscent of Abraham's feud with Abimelech over his well back in chapter 21. What's the point? I think it's more than just, you know, water is scarce in the ancient Near East. I think the takeaway for us today is that we too should plan to face opposition for being a person of faith. Face the same feuds that our predecessors in the faith did. Verse 14 says that the Philistines envied Isaac. Jesus said, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We should expect that. Jesus promised the world would hate us, but here's where we end. Take heart, brother, sister, in Christ. In conclusion, number six, even when the world hates you, God blesses you. Especially when the world hates you, God blesses you. Isaac receives the same blessing that God had long ago promised his father Abraham. Verses 12 through 14, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. He's growing a hundred times the yield that he should have in the middle of a drought. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And then in verses 26 through 33, even Abimelech is forced to acknowledge, look, I've got to make a treaty with this guy because we see plainly that the Lord has been with you, and you are now the blessed of the Lord. Likewise today, Christians, while Jesus promised that you and I would be hated, He also promised blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven here's here's where we're going to leave it so much of this comes down I think to a matter of timing and perspective okay look back at the above the line categories in your bulletin our infidelity its consequences our concerns our conflict our fears our feuds all of that is the result of what us getting Bogged down in the present, or even at times getting stuck in the past. Now, look at the bottom section God's salvation from our sin. He gives us a future of promise, of blessing. God has the future in mind. So, those of us who are in Christ in faith, we need to keep an eternal perspective in mind. We don't lose the forest from the trees. And the best way that we do that is by remembering that God has already, once and for all, blessed us with a future promise, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul says, through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have the promise of eternal life. Anything else on top of that is just gravy on top, icing on the cake. Praise God for his faithfulness in spite of our faithfulness faithlessness. Amen? Let's pray.